0: This episode of Long Night with Vish Khanna was recorded in front of a live studio audience at Spur Festival on Friday, April 8th, 2016.
2: Coming to you live from the Transact in Toronto!
3: Welcome, everyone, to Long Night. James, that was uh, not, great. It wasn't not great. a great introduction it did, it tonight. It what happened, well.
2: buddy? I don't know. I choked. <laughs> I felt like there was pressure. The crowd was way more literary and <laughs> less drunk than usual. And... We
3: are. Uh, yeah. That's fine. Don't worry. Did you, did did, us, you, you, you know, did, we can fix it in post. We can fix it in post. How about this ha- goes out on the air. <laughs> How about a hand for James Keast, everyone? <laughs> How are you doing? I'm okay, thanks. How are you? I'm okay, but there's a thing that's on my mind, and I, I was hoping that you and the people here could help me. Uh, Probably. I often do. <laughs> James is a close confidant of mine. Here's the thing. As most of you know, I'm a very popular and famous TV show host. Uh, everyone's always talking about me and television, but mm. in my line of work, people often uh, you know, offer me other opportunities. And recently, a gentleman from a very big media company in Canada wanted to have a meeting with me to be an on-air personality. How about that? Yeah. So I, uh, as you can see, those of you who can see me, uh, over the last few months, I have basically allowed the hair on my face to just have a very good time, right? (laughs) Something is going on here. I can't figure it out. And I was telling a friend of mine that I have this opportunity, and I said, you know, I'll probably clean all this up, get a haircut, shave. And he said, yeah, and you should dye your hair. Now, I have received a lot of compliments, as you know, about my salt and pepper hair. It's quite lovely, isn't it? You have to admit. And so I was really taken aback by this. And uh, you know, I've never dyed my hair. I know this might be a, a sore topic. Have people, has anyone here dyed their hair? Not even to color gray, just to dye. Linda, you you dye your hair all the time, yeah? Do you like it? It's
4: okay. Well, now it's kind of you just. It's been established. So now I just have to.
3: That's right. Once you die, you can't go back, right? That's what I was told. If I die, it's just—it's well, if I die, this is getting kind of morbid. You're, there's no coming back from that. But what do you think? Do you think that people on TV wouldn't accept me for who I am? Do I look like an old man? No offense to. Well, I—I th- I think
2: the, the problem is. That you have the reverse of what most men have, because most men have a. It's not a, the first I've been told grayer, about
3: this, by the way.
2: Most men have a grayer beard before their head hair goes gray. Right. And you, you've been a salt and pepper gentleman for a, close to a decade. I'd Yes. Say. Yeah. Since I was 18. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's it's <laughs> the incongruity of the dark beard, I think, that is that throws off the look. Oh. But I, I've always admired your hair
3: yeah people like my hair. Yeah. I get it all the time. but yeah. now I have to say where the crisis has come in is i 'm actually considering my friend 's opinion i 'm actually considering before I meet with but- this person <laughs> dyeing my hair and it 's making me crazy because i don 't want to do it i 'm scared i actually i 'm frankly i 'm a little frightened and i, I don 't know what to do. What do you uh, I, want, I want the audience to maybe help me because james is as helpful as ever. By show of applause... Actually, let's come up with a cheer. What would be a good cheer? How about this? If you think I should dye my hair black and try to look young, scream out as loud as you can, Die, vish, die. On the count of three. One, two, three. No one wants me to die. One person. One one
2: person wants you to die.
3: Security? Um, No. And then everyone else thinks I should just keep it?
2: What about, what about the beard? Can we take a poll on the beard? The beard is... What are you talking about with your beard, buddy? I have buddy? a lux- beautiful, luxurious beard, a, beard a of my
3: look. You think my beard is a farce? Is that what you're saying? I, it doesn't necessarily... Dye, dye the, the beard. Ugh. You should dye the beard gray. I don't know if it is. Dye what? Silver? Gray? What am I supposed to dye? Pink. 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 Fuchsia? I would go with fuchsia. Mm. I just like saying fuchsia. fuchsia. Well, I feel like this is um, hopefully a nice segue into our show because I think many of our guests... Uh, have dealt with appearance and the appearance of things. How's that for a segue?
2: It's not, not, it's not bad. I don't know if it's true, I but already I said. I the it. intro, I can't say anything.
3: Yeah. <laughs> on tonight's show, a conversation with highly decorated emergency physician and a leading expert on transgender care, Dr. Karis Mazzarella is here tonight. Also, acclaimed journalist, author, and Middle East expert, Hadani Ditmars, and Malaysian Australian author, rapper, and poet, Omar Musa. That's a good show. Those are good people. Give them a cheer. Oh. Now, uh, we have to go to a commercial. Uh, we're going to go to a quick commercial. I'm being told we have to go to a commercial. So we'll go to a commercial. When we come back, uh, we'll, we'll have our guests. So there we are. Thank you for being here at Long Night at SpurFest, everybody. Are you tired of listening to a podcast without some mention of the company Squarespace? We are too. That's why we're pleased to mention Squarespace on this podcast. What does Squarespace do? It doesn't matter. All you need to know is Squarespace pays a considerable amount of money to be mentioned on successful podcasts. So, if you want to hear about a business on a podcast, always remember that Squarespace is a thing mentioned on podcasts, and they probably have an office space somewhere. That's Squarespace, a company that is mentioned on most successful podcasts. All right, we're back. We're back on Long Night. Now, uh, we are uh, recording this episode and and transmitting live around the world Uh, the night the Blue Jays start uh, playing uh, the baseball. That is true. Is that how the kids talk?
2: Uh, The Raptors are also playing the basketball, and the Marlies are playing the ice ball. Yeah, there's
3: lots of stuff going on in Toronto. We'd like to, once again, thank you all for choosing us over all of those far more expensive options. Thank you for coming to this relatively uh, affordable thing. All right. Our first guest tonight is an attending emergency physician at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, and is the lead physician for the Transgender Care Program at Quest CHC in St. Catharines, and she's a leading expert on transgender healthcare in Canada, and the Huffington Post has listed her as one of the world's top 50 transgender icons. Please welcome Dr. Karis Mazzarella. <laughs> Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you enjoying your Spurfest?
5: <coughs> yeah, so far it's been pretty awesome. Thank what you.
3: have you done here so far? Because I just um,
5: so far I've drank a beer and uh, <laughs> talked with my fellow guests and uh, met met some great people.
3: Right. Well, I have to say I'm very honored and excited that there's a, a decorated physician here today. Uh, because uh, I have a kink in my neck <laughs> makes me sound like when you say decorated
5: physician it makes me sound like a war hero But thank you.
3: Do you think you can actually help? I, it's really a problem Do you think maybe after the show? I'm just having some rotation issues or something and I, I have a lot of issues and uh, Don't We all yeah, I, I suppose that's true. Yeah now as I mentioned you're an emergency physician mm-hmm. uh, This means you treat people coming into the emergency room I assume that's correct. Yes, right so I'm curious, what drew you to take on? Like, that's among the most intense forms of medical practice. Why would you want to do that to yourself?
5: Well, I think um, really most emergency physicians are doctors with undiagnosed ADHD. Um, <laughs> I mean, basically, we see people in snippets. We get very little information and we just kind of act on instinct. So for me, that's, I'm, you know, a high intensity. I like to do things at 100 miles an hour. So for me, Emerge Medicine was the perfect career. And so I just found myself in it. I, I trained in it. And I love it, and I actually worked a shift today, so it was, it was pretty epic, I had a great time.
3: You worked a shift today and then came here? I did, yes. Did it go okay?
5: Um, you know, you might wanna pull the patients about that, but uh, yeah, I think right. it went well.
3: Okay. Now, when you say you have ADHD, or maybe it's inherent within you, are there other ways in life that this is exemplified? Is there any other instance where you're like, I gotta, I'm a spaz, what's going on?
5: <laughs> well, I mean, like I grew up in Northern Ontario, so I don't know if that influenced you know, my career choice and my life choices. but. Um, you know, I was exposed to a lot of sulfur dioxide as a child, so I don't know if that if that had a significant effect on on me as a person. But I mean, I think you know, for me, this whole way I live my life, which is that you know, at full speed, has allowed me to sort of achieve things you know in a way that maybe other people wouldn't w- wouldn't have done at that you know in in, in this way. So I think it, it just allows me to to I think uh, at least be successful in in, in ways that maybe. For other people, it would be different. I don't even know what I'm really saying right now. No,
3: but... well, it's because you have the ADHD. You don't right, know exactly. You're, you're so I actually have like
5: 10 thoughts going through my head yeah. right
3: now. No, that's fair. Now, you deal every day uh, with, with situations where people's lives are hanging in the balance. Mm-hmm. I assume every day there are tragedies, there are triumphs. Mm-hmm. How difficult is it for you to not become emotionally involved when you're working with someone?
5: I think that's something that all doctors learn, at least you need to learn that, because if you do become emotionally involved, uh, I think unfortunately it becomes very hard to practice. So for example, uh, just on Sunday we had a 50-year-old guy who dropped dead in the waiting room. We ran a huge uh, cardiac arrest code on this guy, he was basically having a large heart attack and he, he passed away. And then two minutes later I was in a room with a guy complaining about his sore toe for the last six months. and so. You, really what you have to do is you have to put it aside and and just you know put it in, in, in sort of a way and sometimes you know there are moments when you have to deal with it in a more meaningful way especially when it's something that can resonate with you but for me it's just the idea that you know it, it is your job it's something that you need to do it's something that you need to get you get you need to get past and i don't it, I, I don't dwell on it i really can put it away if i if i think if i went home with it i couldn't do this job
3: but, okay, so you're dealing with this horrible tragedy of a fellow in the waiting room. Is Sore Guy entitled? Is Sore Guy saying, My Sore And you're like, dude, like a guy just...
5: Yeah, so Sore Guy actually did say to me, quite clearly, uh, what took you so long? And I said, <coughs> there was a guy who just died in the waiting room. He went, well, he's dead. I went, yes, he is, but... He said, <laughs> yeah, well, he's dead. Yes, yes, yes. He said, well, he... And I went, yes, no, that's a, that's a fair point. However... <laughs> As a what? physician, it's my duty to try and make him undead, which sounds vaguely, or or How but sore was his toe? It, you know, to me as an emergency physician, I felt that it wasn't sore enough to be in the emergency department. So um, I felt that maybe what I should do is make him spell the word emergency and then look it up in in, in the dictionary. But <laughs> you can't you do that. You can't do that. There's only so many complaints that you can. You take can't and. be
3: sarcastic as the emergency room doctor, can you? <laughs>
5: <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not no, We're not can't. like that, we're very good people
3: Now it's safe to say that sometimes uh, We as people, some of us are idiots And we do ridiculous things to our bodies And we end up in the emergency room Absolutely Can you think of something Have you encountered something so absurd That you're still kind of laughing about it
5: well, we always have something called the personal problem in the emergency department. So whenever you get a chart with personal problem, you know it's going to be a male, aged somewhere between 20 to 40, who's been doing things to himself he shouldn't. <laughs> and um, he'll come to the emergency department. So one I particularly remember was a guy who, uh, on his own accord, uh, forged a titanium cock ring. And um, he, forged? Uh, he forged it, yes, on <laughs> his own, like a tool and die guy. And, um, <laughs> a tool and die guy. The, it's the theme tonight. I think it's Dive. very clever. It, it's it's our theme, and yeah. so he placed this said titanium coppering on his said member, and became engorged. And um, however, as you know, steel titanium is not a forgiving substance. So once he became engorged, he couldn't become unengorged. And however, he decided to wait a couple of days before he came to the emergency department. <laughs> so when he arrived in the emergency department, the part of his member distal or beyond the titanium ring was somewhat blackened. Oh. Now, at oh. that time, I hadn't transitioned, and I was like, ooh, not, not, not a bad idea. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: I, I think I was wow. the only person in the department thinking that at that point in time.
2: That and doesn't d- seem like an area in which you want to go DIY. No.
5: <laughs> no. 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 Uh, but it, it crossed not. my mind. Yeah, so, um, and you know, the only way you can get off that off was basically because it was so engorged, you actually had to use a steel cutter to get it off in the OR. Oh. See all the guys, like, oh my mm. god. <laughs> That's right. Uh,
3: and what, what happened in the end?
5: Um, he lost part of his um, personal uh, space. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Wow. Well, how uh, How was his toe? I, so, <laughs> I don't know. You know,
5: he also complained about that, and he didn't uh...
3: <laughs> Now, my understanding is that you transitioned to uh, a woman from a man, and I can see why, because uh, we're <laughs> idiots, clearly. Um, when you were 42 years old, Correct, yeah. uh,
5: which was like eight years ago or something like that. I like to think 32, but you can say 42. 32, right, what, yeah.
3: sorry. What prompted you
5: to, to do this? Well, I think, you know, one of the interesting things when you ask people about, you know, who have experienced uh, gender identity expression opposite to their assigned b- birth gender, which is essentially what a transgender person is, for me, like, I knew my whole life that, you know, that's who I was, and it wasn't, for me, it wasn't a revelation. But I think, you know, when you talk about dying, again, the theme tonight, um, as a transgender person, there's sort of two ways you die. Some people actually actively kill themselves, and that's why you look at a suicide rate or suicide attempt rate of about 45%. Mm. But you also die inside. And for me, I had reached the point where I was felt dead inside, and the only option I really felt I had to continue my life in a meaningful way was to transition. So mm. it was a difficult decision because it's not something you know to do in the middle of your life casually, especially when you've built a career as a physician and you have a family and... And you know you live in Oakville, um, Canada's most yeah know, Canada's most diverse community. Um, so you know yeah. yeah you know what I mean. So yeah, it, 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 it sure. was a difficult decision, but for me it was obviously it was the right decision.
3: Now how soon after you uh, transitioned did you feel like
5: yourself? So for me, I think it was uh, something. Uh, you know, it, it it's not you know you like to say it's almost immediate, but I think there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a learning curve, right? To Living in your preferred gender because there's a lot of things that are different in the way that the world perceives you. So, for example, you know, I'd been a doctor for many years prior to transition. And I had never been mistaken for anything but a doctor. But the minute I transitioned, uh, people would say, oh, when's the doctor coming? And I'd be like, the doctor just came. And it was quite a shock to me. So it just sort of speaks to the patriarchy. People were treating you as though you
3: were the nurse. Nurse, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. And so there were lots of different ways that I had to adjust my life. And I would say I've really only become you know comfortable even then I think there's still moments where I'm not entirely comfortable in the last year or two
3: and now obviously you must have you you would not have maybe i mean lots of women go through this sexism yeah, and you probably didn't have that perspective and now you do I yes mean, what's that like
5: um i think it's 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 eye opening for me, so one yeah. of the things that I did learn was that uh Especially, I think, you know, in the trans community when you pass, so to speak. So for people, they look at me and, you know, in my day-to-day life, nobody knows that I'm a transgendered woman. And mm-hmm. so you do experience sexism on, on, on a diff- in a different way. And so for me, what I find is, as, as a woman, you're expected to, I think, take a backseat to men in some ways. Um, one thing I like to talk about is the Starbucks effect. And... It's like manspreading and what I first noticed was when you go to Starbucks and you get a coffee and I apologize for going to Starbucks for those of you who are opposed to that um, but I live in Oakville that's all we have um, so I, I I would go to Starbucks and you you could you know get your you get your drink and then you go to get your milk and your condiments with your coffee and you'd watch a, a man there and he'd take up the entire space like he'd manspread and then you watch like three or four women and they would sort of take up the space together and so I just found that there was a different sense of The way you take up space um, when you're female versus male, and and I think that people expect you to take up less space. They expect you to be less, you know, not not almost not to be present in some ways. And so that was a learning experience for me. It doesn't mean I'm any I'm any less, you know, entitled or any less. um, I I don't feel any less, but certainly I think society as a whole thinks of me differently. Right. Approaches me differently. I wonder why we take up so much room.
3: It Seems to be a, a trend. I mean, people talk about it on the subway all the time the man spreading thing.
5: I think it's also a confidence thing. One of the things that really interests oh, yeah. me is men are taught it's okay to be confident, they're taught it's okay to be strong, be powerful, be aggressive. Whereas Not a, this
3: guy, I, I, my parents were like, You are nothing, stop. No,
5: <laughs> and clearly they were on the right track. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, I agree. but yeah, but. I, I think that one of the things that, you know, we need to teach our younger women is it's okay to be confident, it's okay yeah. to, to, to get what you want in life, you know, and I, I just think that that's a big difference. I really see that, at least in, in, in the world that I, that I exist in.
3: Now, you've done a couple of TED Talks, including one a couple of years ago, called The False Narrative of Deception. What was the nature of that talk?
5: Well, I think you see it now in the United States, particularly. Um, what I anticipated was there would be this bathroom issue. And, um, you know, there's this false trope that's passed on by people, you know, who don't like transgender people, who actually don't really like anybody for that matter, um, who's not white cisgendered and heteronormative. Right. But, um, but these folks, you know, use the false trope that if you allow transgender people to identify in their gender and use the bathroom um, of their preferred gender, that you're going to allow, you know, predators into bathrooms to assault women and children. And I could see this coming. And it's been proven in the Houston Hero Ordinance in North Carolina and Mississippi, all the very progressive states in, in America, um, and, and and we've seen this, and it's a false trope, right, because there's never been a single recorded case of a transgendered woman uh, doing this. And what's even worse about this is that it doesn't apply to trans men, it doesn't apply to passing trans women, it's just non-passing trans women who, right. they, who, who, who they're talking about. But if you really wanted to use evidence, right, and if you really, really, really cared about evidence, right people you'd ban from bathrooms, we know there are certain groups of individuals who have absolutely assaulted children and done this to children, and one of those w- groups would be, you know, clergy, right? We would. So we should really ban, ban all clergy from bathrooms. We should ban <laughs> teachers from bathrooms because they have all been convicted of assaulting children. So really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a horrible trope. It's false, and uh, that's what I wanted to talk about. And let's just face it, when, just like cisgendered people, when transgender people use a bathroom, they use it because they have to pee. It's that simple.
3: I mean, you mentioned North Carolina there, yep. and they just passed this bathroom yep. law. And uh, as we're speaking, I don't know if it was today, did you see that Bruce Springsteen canceled his concert in North Carolina? Because it, no, I didn't
5: see that. No, that's awesome. How
3: about a hand for Bruce Springsteen? For Bruce, yeah. He said to show solidarity with uh, the LGBTQ No, people. I think...
5: I think you know you are seeing the backlash, and it's interesting. You you, you talk about that. Um, I was trying to think of an analogy. I think that we've won the war, but there are still battles to be fought. And so I was thinking, like you know, nineteen. You know, what people say. You know, if you're Second World War buffs, it just shows you how weird I am. Um, But if you look at, like, Hitler, you know, when did Hitler lose the war? And you could argue that he lost the war at the gates of Moscow in in December of 1941 when the German army was turned back. Now, nobody thought at that time, because that was the extent, the massive extent of German power, but they lost the war then. There were still battles to be fought, like at Stalingrad, Kharkov, Kursk, but the war was lost. I think it's the same for us. The millennial generation, the Generation Y behind me, don't care about this issue. To them, it's about equality. They don't
3: care about it because it's it's not an issue. Right, exactly. To them, they, it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah.
5: And so, yeah, we're going to have some battles that still need to be fought, like in North Carolina, Mississippi, and Houston. But ultimately, I think, you know, we, we have won the war.
3: It does seem to me that we're in a better place when it comes to the rise in profile and acceptance of transgender people in popular culture. And you're saying you think we've made progress, obviously. Yes. And and you're, we're seeing it in films, and yep. everything feels positive. Yep. What is the
5: Canada Family Action Council? Well, they're a group of wonderful people um, who hate everyone. Um, (laughs) They're, you know, so-called social conservatives. And they, I mean, it's not just transgender people they dislike. They dislike homosexuals. They dislike people with progressive agendas. They basically dislike everyone who's not like them. Um, but certainly, they do have influence. They have influence with conservative senators, in particular. So, in the last parliament, when the, the elected representatives passed Bill C-279, which was the transgender rights bill, unfortunately, it was defeated in the Senate, uh, par- partially because of influence from these types of groups. Right. And in fact, the conservative members who voted in favor of the transgender rights bill, they would call you know CINOs or conservatives in name, in name only. So, they have influence. In certain circles, um, presumably with this government, they won't have the same amount of influence. But uh, they, they exist, and they're the same people who 50 years ago would have been against interracial marriage. You it's know, it's
3: so weird that all of these groups tend to invoke family, right? Like that's their emotional heartstring-pulling thing, right? That we are we're a yeah. tribe, and everyone else is what the that's annoying. It's annoying to me that
5: they do this, and and I don't know when that is going to change. What well, I agree with you because I mean. Like, I come from a family, I don't know about you, but...
3: I I sort of did.
5: Yeah. I mean, we've met your parents, they seem lovely. Yeah, they seem lovely. Are they still here? Oh, thanks for sticking around,
3: mom and dad. I need gas money from them later. No. Yeah. No, No, my family was mostly pretty great.
5: No, and same with my family too. Like my family was very. They're not going to hear this.
3: It's okay, James. James yeah. is worried about my. Fa- James came to my wedding. How about a hand for James? He came to <laughs> the wedding. Nah. I came to two of your weddings. Yeah, I did have two weddings. I had two weddings in one day. It was a bit much.
5: You had like the the, the, the white wedding and the traditional. I, I, we didn't call it that, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> we did call it that. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been. I have a few friends who told me that's what they yeah. call it.
3: Yeah, yeah. It was nice. It was actually very lovely. I know family's great. I think family's yeah. great, but when you use it as a a way of excluding people it's so bizarre that you could say that you could use a term that is meant to be this galvanizing thing and and we're gonna alienate as many people as possible.
5: Well just to me they always seem so angry too, like they're angry at everything. Well that's
3: normal for a family. I guess that's true, fair point. That (laughs) part (laughs) makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Now you've been featured in documentaries Uh, you're often asked to speak at events like this. I'm curious are you thinking about a book? Is there any other media form? Like what's next for you?
5: Um, you know, people have asked me about that, and um, I always think, you know, if I was ever going to write a book, I'd want to actually have to say something interesting, and I'm not sure that I actually have anything interesting to say in the
3: I sense of I would that... disagree, <laughs> and would ask that the applause sign go up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, I, I do. Like, I mean, I watched your, your TED Talk. This has been fun. I mean, everything I've seen you do, and, and the appearances you made in the documentaries, you seem like you'd be a very compelling person. You are a very compelling person. Thank you, Vish. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. So, yeah, are you thinking about something?
5: Um, I think, again, um, I have been approached by... You know, some TV producers about doing a show or something, and I'm just not sure. I mean, I really value my pri- privacy as I sit on the stage and talk in front of all these people. <laughs> I really value my privacy, but I have, I do have two small children, and so some of the choices I make are around my 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 g- girls because I think they they can't make those choices yet. Yep. And so I, I try to be a little bit careful, not entirely careful, clearly, but but a little bit careful. And so I think. At this point in time, I'm probably just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Okay. Try and make a difference that way.
3: I assume that the privacy would uh,
5: explain why. As far as I know, you don't have a Twitter, you don't seem to be on Facebook or anything like that. Um, I was on Facebook. um, But you know what I do like, though, which is ironic, which makes me sound... uh, I like Snapchat.
3: That's fine. What's wrong with Snapchat? No, I mean,
5: I think it's the best flirting tool ever invented. Um, (laughs) I like it. You like Snapchat? I do. What kinds of things
3: do you send out on the Snapchat? Uh, become my friend you'll find out ok alright
5: can people uh, uh, follow you on the snapchat yeah you can yeah. what's yeah. your thing uh, god that's a good question I think it's Karis Mass 8 ok Karis yep. Mass 8 All right, so well, if you, you want to get a snapchat from me fire it up well I want to thank
3: you very much for being on this show thank you very much Karis Masarela everyone please stay Uh, still to come conversations with Adani Ditmars and Omar Musa. Plus, we're going to get Linda's take, which is uh, always very exciting. We're going to take a short break right now and uh, we'll be right back. Another hand for Dr. Karis Mazzarella, everyone.
0: For your own pleasure, a well hidden treasure Pizza Chocadero. We serve delicious gourmet pizza with daily made dough, homemade sauce. And fresh toppings cut by hand. Ask us for our 2 1 special. Pizza Chocadero, open
3: weekdays till 9, weekends until 10. Located at 7 Municipal North of College in Edinburgh. Proud to be an independent family owned business. Call 519
6: 829 2444 or visit chocadero.ca.
3: To see you. Uh, just a reminder that tonight's show will soon be appearing as an episode of the Creative Control podcast, which is available on iTunes, AudioBoom.com, bishkana.com and also CF4U.ca. And we also have a Patreon page where you can make a monthly flex- flexible donation to keep the podcast going. So that would be nice. Does anyone here uh, contribute to the uh, Patreon page? Uh huh. Okay, that's <laughs> fine. It's fine. It's fine. Not, parents. Not my parents. Mom, Dad, no. This joke is wearing thin. I feel for them, they're going to leave just like my parents. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, so if you can, keep listening and spreading the word about creative control. You know, some days the world is so messed up you can't make any sense of it. It's times like these when we have no choice but to get Linda's take. I was wondering why there wasn't much applause going on. It's because you disappeared into the wings. You and think I'm useless, but... The, the, the people... Oh! Know. Linda, it's nice to have you back on the show. Uh, it's always nice to have uh, you uh, tell us what your take is on things. So, what's going on? What do you want to talk about?
4: Well, okay. I was going to come and just like make a million dick jokes and just be my regular core self. Usually, this is on Long Winter, which is a dirtbag party, uh, and people are like just drunk. It's a
2: sophisticated art salon. Oh,
4: I'm sorry. It's a sophisticated art salon. It's just full of drunken bastards. And then tonight, all these people are so classy and they seem like well-read. Keast told me that they were professors, so I, I don't know.
3: Keast like... told you that everyone on the show is a professor?
4: No, not not on the show. Not they're
2: just dancers. the show. The
3: oh. Audience oh, in the audience. Oh. Everyone
4: is a
2: professor. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Anybody here a professor?
2: I, they're liars. Welcome.
3: Too. It's nice to have you here. Professors, you're right. Wow. So uh, what does this what, wait? What does this mean for Linda's take?
4: It means I'm I'm shy. You know, I don't want to let the, the tiger out of the cage.
3: I think everyone <laughs> would encourage Linda, with or without the applause sign, to be herself, right?
4: <laughs> Do you have any questions for a representative of hot young millennials such as myself? Like no,
3: no. I mean, it's your take. Whatever you want to talk about, it's my take. I, right. Remember, we said you'd. Uh, <laughs> This happens every time. Yeah. We said, you'll come up with a topic yeah. and tell me about it, and then I'll ask you questions about it. But I don't make up the topic. It's your take. Oh, okay. You come up with the subject matter. We emailed about this. Yes, yes. Again. Yes. I'm starting to feel like this whole segment is just me yelling at you for not doing the segment.
4: I like it a lot. It's my Do favorite segment. You,
3: is there something you'd like to talk about today, Linda?
4: Hmm. Well, I was kind of uh, intrigued when you were talking about dyeing your hair, because I never thought of that before, how you That's have a black my beard. take. That's my <laughs> what thing. That is my take on your take, isn't Okay, it?
3: fine. What, what do you okay. have to say about what I said?
4: Well, I would encourage you not to dye your hair, because once you start dyeing your hair, people make requests, and it's really annoying.
3: People make requests about what?
4: Like, I used to have blue hair, and people were like, I miss the blue hair. And it's like, that's a rude thing to say to somebody, I feel like, to ask them to change their hair head for you? Right. Like, yeah, I don't know. that's
3: kind of in, it's a certain level of intimacy that I'm not comfortable with myself. Sure. Exactly. Okay.
4: But you're, you're a guy, so you're allowed to have gray hairs. Like, no offense, but I have all these grays. Like, I know I just said I was a hot young millennium, but I'm actually old as fuck. So I got tons of grays, but I got to cover them up so I seem like this wide-eyed ingenue and not the old salty curmudgeon that we all know me to be deep down inside.
3: Ingenue? Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So you're, you're, you're old. You're not really a wide, okay. So, okay. All right. Well, we, um, hmm. is there something else you'd like to prepare for the next time we do this segment so that we can be ready for the people? You
4: know, I had, I had a really great segment prepared for the last show, but then you cut me. And now a, I don't remember what it was. It was
3: within an hour. I emailed you and said, could you do it? It and was then...
4: actually more like four minutes, but I had a great idea. And then it was like, well, I forgot it now.
3: Okay. Um, are you excited about the Blue Jays?
4: Yes, absolutely.
3: What, do you, what's, what are you looking forward to?
4: Um, just like, I hope they make it to the playoffs again because people are nicer. when In Toronto? Have, yeah, yeah. Like everyone's like on the same side. It's like, you know, the first day of spring. It's like the first day of spring.
3: Do you actually, do, do people find that when you're walking around Toronto and the Blue Jays or, or one of our teams is doing well, that everyone seems friendlier and nicer? Does anyone? <laughs> no. No. It's like, maybe it's just
4: me because I'm in such a great mood. I'm just like bopping around and I'm just like in like a 40s musical and like Technicolor and everything's awesome. And then it's just an internal thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay.
3: Well, um, well, I wish you the best of luck uh, with your team.
4: Yeesh, next time, just give me a topic and I'll think of a take. <laughs> I say,
3: do you have a take on something? I can't give you the take. I don't
4: have any opinions.
3: You d- this is a weird segment for you to have. <laughs> I gotta say, we're gonna have to retool... Guys, I think we gotta retool Linda's take. It's just... It's good. I like it. I like just talking to you. So I that's love chatting fine. with you. Okay, I think we've done enough. Okay, that's yeah. fine. How about a hand for Linda, everyone? Uh, we have to step away for a moment. When we return, noted journalist and author Hadani Ditmars will be here, so don't go anywhere. Thanks. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening I Saw the Light, Night of Cups, The Grand Seduction, The Messenger, Miles Ahead, and more. At the E-Bar on April 20th, see Roxanne Potvin and Aaron Costello. On April 21st, see Full Manchu and Shy Harry. On April 22nd, attend the fourth annual Guelph Pride Pageant. On April 23rd, James Hammond presents Unrefined Comedy on the Road, and also on April 23rd, it's my dad's birthday. Happy birthday, Dad! The bookshelf is an independently owned cultural hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, Ontario. For more information about the bookshelf's hours, listings, blogs, directions, accessibility, and to order books from their online store from anywhere in the world, possibly for my dad on his birthday, please visit the newly designed bookshelf.ca. Welcome back to Long Night, uh, everyone. Thanks for being here again. Our next guest is an acclaimed Vancouver-based journalist and the author of this 2006 book, Dancing in the No-Fly Zone, A Woman's Journey Through Iraq. She is currently working on a new book called Between Two Rivers, A Journey Through the Ancient Heart of Iraq. Please say hello to Hadani Ditmars, everyone. Hadani Ditmars. Thanks for being here.
6: Great to be here. It's
3: nice to have you all the way from Vancouver. Is that where you live? You actually? Yeah,
6: it was 20 degrees today, and everyone was at the beach, and some people were swimming.
3: You were about to get booed by a bunch <laughs> of people in Toronto. I've never seen that before. It was a
6: sunny day here. I liked the weather actually. Yeah. Very crisp and yeah. Nice. And I, well, I got a tan. <laughs> really? Yeah.
3: Yeah. No, it was nice. It seemed nice. Well, in uh, Vancouver is good. Is everything good in Vancouver?
6: You know, I live by the beach, and um, I spend... (laughs) But because it's Vancouver, I live in sort of like 400 square feet, so I have 20 years of pre-digital archives, you know, journalistic, you know, slide film from Iraq and various things. So I have a really tiny space with a view by the beach. It's very Vancouver. Um, But I spend most of my time locked away typing, and then you can find me walking on the beach. Um, Usually in the morning when I... Facebook friends in Iraq. Iraqis seem to have only, uh, well, they've discovered Facebook chat because it's actually an easy way to communicate. Oh, Messenger? And and it's better reception than the, the mobile network. Oh, okay. So I'll be, you know, you can find me on most mornings walking along the beach with all these people walking their dogs, and I'll be talking to someone in you know, in Baghdad or in, in Babel or Nasriyeh.
3: Okay, <laughs> so nice.
6: It's a little bit of a surreal thing. It's like, you know, the West Coast and the Middle East. It's very far away, one from the other. I, I understand so
3: that. I've seen maps. That's that's true. Toronto they are feels far. a little
6: bit closer somehow to things, closer right. to the center of things.
3: Now, you're yeah. working on this new book that I know you're very excited to talk about, and I'm just wondering, because uh, I understand it's sort of related to this book that came out in 2006, 10 years ago. Can you talk about the relationship between this book and the one you're working on?
6: So, um, yeah, the first book um, really was a kind of before and after narrative. I I first went to Iraq in 1997. Um, I was writing for the New York Times, and at the time, the um, sort of dominant media narrative was about the weapons inspectors and Saddam. And that was a bit of a ridiculous cat and mouse game, as we found out later as well, thanks right. to Hans Blix. Uh, mm-hmm. The weapons thing was a bit of a ruse. And it was just kind of a very boring story because there was only so much back and forth and you know how much copy could you file. So at that time, I, um, I ended up uh, missing a tour, an organized media tour of the palaces one day because I slept in. and um,
3: Typical Vancouverite. <laughs> <laughs> Slacking.
6: Well, it was like, it was one of these surprise Stalinist minder things where it was like... Um, oh, oh, I hate those. You know, yeah, it was like seven in the morning, you know, someone kept ringing my telephone. I figured it was just a wrong number. And it was probably Stalin. One of the, one of the minders
3: <laughs> <laughs> saying, come, we're, <laughs> you know, we're
6: putting you all in a bus and we're going to some surprise sure. place and they would surprise us. So I was like, oh no, I've been up late filing. So, so that day, instead of going to the palaces, I wandered into the press center, which was this interesting place um that any journalist who was there in the pre-regime change days will remember well it was like a weird little souk it was like a a, a tightly fitted bazaar full of um spooks and uh, you know these these minders who were really spies for the ministry of information in double-breasted suits and saddam mustaches and there were little booths like you know ap had their little booths and you know reuters had their booth so I wandered in, and there was only one minder left, and he turned out to be the nephew of Tarek Aziz. He was a Christian, and he was. We started chatting because no one was around, and it became sort of less formal. And uh, he was a student of, of literature, and so we had this whole talk about uh, Najib Mahfouz and uh-huh. Egyptian literature. And, and then he said, "Oh well, I'll take you to the book market because it was a Friday." And so we wandered into Mutanabi Street, went to the Poets' Cafe. I we, we you know I saw this incredible um, architecture there, and. I just kind of fell in love with the whole cultural story that um, most of the news hounds weren't really, you know, talking about. And you just had I just had this incredible feeling of, you know, I'm in Mesopotamia and and there's this incredibly rich modern culture. And it's not. Hold
0: up.
6: almost um, as if, you know, 35 million people were all Saddam Hussein, you know? <laughs> there, there was such a caricature um, of, of what Iraq was. So I guess that was kind of an, an inspiration for the book. I thought, I've really got to write a book about about Iraqi culture right. and people, and not just this bizarre, you know, caricature, um, Saddam obsession, you know, as if he represented the whole nation. I mean, God, imagine if... In our in, 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 with our previous prime minister, we were all Harper. You know, I mean that would be frightening. <laughs> I think. So
3: I think a lot of us were.
6: Were we? <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> That's how
3: I felt some days.
6: Some I days maybe. Grounding maybe. my children, you know? Yeah. Stop that. I'd like I to be like Justin. I'd like to have that, you know, the boxing body and yoga and everything. I'm not quite there yet.
3: He's hot stuff, that guy. Yeah. Yeah, People talk yeah about I that. wouldn't
6: mind. I wouldn't mind being Justin, that would be okay, but anyway, so um, so there I was in this police state with this crumbling infrastructure, because at the time the sanctions, as you know, were, well maybe not, I don't know, um, remember Madeleine Albright saying it was worth the price, you know, 500,000 children died, yeah. why? Because of these draconian UN sanctions, right. that blocked things at the border that could have been dual use. There's a whole chapter on public health in my book you'd probably find really interesting. So um, along with... Um, you know, things like like stethoscopes, oxygen bottles, um, uh, chlorine for water purification, right, because it could have a dual, per, dual use. Sure. So, you know, you had a, a desert country where you weren't allowed to import chlorine. So 500,000 children died of waterborne illnesses right. that were totally preventable. So there was this tragedy unfolding. And um, I discovered that the way to tell the story of Iraq was really through the cultural filter. So, you know, going to Mutanabi Street and interviewing these professors and scholars who were tearfully selling their collections of books of Walt Whitman poetry or of Najib Mahfouz or, you know, because there's this proverb in Arabic which is, um, Egyptians write, Lebanese publish, Iraqis read. So they really were the intellectuals of the Middle East Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. voracious readers, but because of the sanctions and the 3,000% devaluation of the dinar and the economic collapse, People were selling their prized book collections um, to pay for basics like food and medicine. So Iraq, which had had the best public healthcare and, and education system in the, in the Middle East, uh, suddenly, uh, after you know year um, six into sanctions, infant mortality rate was on par with sub-Saharan Africa, whereas before it had been like Greece or something. Right. So. Um, this tragedy was unfolding, but there was still this vibrant culture, uh, and again, it, it, Iraq was still secular. You know, it was a police state, but it was still secular. So, I went to Christmas Eve in this Chaldean church. There's a whole chapter on Christians in that book, and this picture of this altar boy with a candle—not Saddam Hussein, an altar boy. You know, this is it's the face easy of Iraq. To get, it's
3: easy to get an altar <laughs> boy and Saddam Hussein confused for one another. So, I understand. So this confusion. was still a
6: time. This was a time when it, you know. Children were dying of waterborne illnesses uh, that were preventable because of the sanctions. Um, people were selling their book collections to pay their rent. Uh, you know, there was economic collapse. Saddam was in power, but there was still this incredible theater scene. Well,
3: this is what I'm I'm curious about because you, you 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 are in a zone where there's so much volatility and it's war torn and there's sanctions. But arts and culture are currency. Arts and culture are, are. You figured out that this is going on and that we didn't know about it. I mean, that's a that's an amazing aspect of this story.
6: Well, under sanctions, um, you know, actually, actors in successful plays made more money than doctors. Uh, so weirdly, huh. the, the, the sanctions.
3: Now, Karis, how do you, how do you feel about that? Does that make uh, sense?
5: Very nervous.
6: <laughs> what are I your can acting skills yeah. like? But the thing is, you know how they always say economic uh, downturn is good for the arts because the rents are cheap and everything, but, but also with those oxygen bottles and stethoscopes and spare parts for generators and chlorine for water purification block at the border was also film processing chemicals. So the film industry and, and cinemas, and you couldn't import film. and right. So um, a lot of old cinemas closed down and became theaters because all you need to create theater is just humanity, you know, and, right. and, and wit, and... And um, and that's
3: something we forget, I think, when we watch the news or we read about reports from these areas, it's that there's people trying to get on with their lives and find joy.
6: But the theater was a great escape, uh, and it was also subsidized, so it was still kind of affordable, and it was kind of the only entertainment around, and it was also the only really forum for political critique, because you could get away with double meanings and you know like one play that I write about in Dancing in the No-Fly Zone in the theater chapter was about a um, set in the Ottoman era and there was a corrupt sultan and, you know, it was really about Saddam, but you could get away with it, with kind of double entendre right. and that kind of thing. Right. So um, so that was kind of my great discovery. And then I, I went back uh, in 2003 because I wanted to write this book for many years, but publishers are only interested in the culture of places when they're being bombed, apparently. So <laughs> it was it was the Iraqi, uh, it was the invasion of Iraq in 2003 that, that uh, brought about an in- interest from a publisher. In Canada, and uh, and then I went back after the invasion in September, August, uh, August, September, o- October of 2003 uh, to kind of find out what had happened to all these people. Right, uh, and that was a window where it was just kind of safe enough to wander. Um, now I'm facing this reality of you know, I'm, Inshallah, going to Iraq in a few weeks. Um, in fact, an Iraqi friend is. Here now, possibly I don't know if I'm. Yes, you're going. Here when are you going? Um, well, soon, soon. Um, the thing is, is Shouldn't that Shouldn't
3: you uh, know when you're going? <laughs> I just I like to plan things. Like I knew I was coming here tonight from Guelph, and I planned it's not it. An I was easy in my was in my calendar. It's not an
6: easy thing. I've got a visa that's yeah. good until um, May 18th. Oh, okay. But I've been dealing with Iraqi bureaucrats, which. Anyway. Oh, I hate that. Um, <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out a way to, to do it safely and also in a way that I can really have contact with people. So, so the new book, Between Two Rivers, um, a, a Journey Through the Ancient Heart of Iraq, is um, I'm very happy to say I.B. Taurus, the great U.K. publisher, is publishing it. And they also publish uh, posthumously Freya Stark, right, who, whose Baghdad sketches I've been rereading. Uh, And it's incredible because she was one of the first uh, Western women writers to go and kind of live with Iraqis and write about Iraq. And um, she, she was very courageous and she traveled cheaply in service taxis like I did and um, you know, spoke Arabic as much as she could and really, but there's a resonance with these issues that were still, you know, that were at play in the 1930s that still are today, so it's quite interesting to read that. But this new book is basically framed as a, it's a political travelogue using ancient, ancient sites as a narrative device to mm-hmm. tell the story of Iraq because you, know, you talk about Iraq as a country of five million displaced and you know, millions of widows and orphans and people just tune out. But when you talk about Babylon or Ur or you know the Ziggurat, going, oh, that's interesting. Right. So I'm kind of using that as a narrative device to tell the story of Iraq today. Um, but I also want to um, tell the story of Iraq as I did in my first book, really paying homage to the Ruhi Irakiye, to the soul of the country, as a place uh, that is the cradle of civilization, that was the mm-hmm. cradle of civilization, um, but that still has a very vibrant modern culture, because this secular culture has been really diminished since the regime change, but it's still alive. Um, There's this tremendous protest culture going on right now, which is really underreported. There are uh, artists and galleries and theater and amazing things going on in very, very difficult conditions. Well,
3: I mean, I'm just mindful of the time, but this sounds very fascinating, and do you have a sense of when this book will be out? I know you have a... A crowdfunding site, right?
6: Well, I'm working on it. This is the new publishing reality. Even when you have a great publisher, um, it's expensive to travel to Iraq these days because of security concerns. So I'm working with an NGO um, that works with displaced people. Uh, and actually, they have a program where they work with displaced youth who have been you know, trapped in camps forever and don't know their own patrimony. They don't, they've never been to Babel, they've never been to Ur. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to travel with them to their projects, which happen to be in places where there's ancient sites, and I'm going to tell the story of these displaced people, especially the youth. And at the same time, they're taking them to visit the sites. So oh, I nice. will be seeing these sites, sometimes for the first time nice. for myself, and first time for these young people. Um, so yeah, I am going to be launching a crowdfunding site on Indiegogo in the next few weeks. And in the meantime, if anyone's interested in uh, finding out more about it, you can just go to my website, which is my name, www.hadaniditmars.com.
3: Your first name is www. That's a, <laughs> that's a remarkable coincidence. I changed it a few years ago. Amazing. Yeah, I wanted wow. To,
6: you know, Easier to mm, click on, that's, you know. That's, that's easier very to spell than handy. Hadani. Yeah. And yeah. if you don't know how to spell my name, remember "Dancing in the No Fly Zone" and then Google that, and you'll get my name. And that's my website Wait and my second. email. Wait a second. Sorry.
3: Okay. Right. <laughs> Google <laughs> Dancing. Okay, I got it. Yeah, because "Dancing good. in
6: the No Fly Zone" is easier yeah. to spell than Hadani Ditmars. Even though it's easy to spell, if you. a so lovely him. name, Hadani Ditmars. Thank Dittmars. you. I like Thank it. You. Okay. So for yeah. more
3: information, HadaniDitmars.com. How about a hand for Hadani Ditmars, everyone? Thank you very much. Thank you. We're just going to take a very quick break, and when we return, we're going to have a chat and, I think, a performance with author, poet, and rapper Omar Musa. Stick around, everyone. Thank you for being here once again. The 231st Kazoo Show is an all-ages licensed three-band bill featuring proto-martyr, Duchess Says and Starts Something and takes place Tuesday, May 3rd at the E-Bar in Guelph. The E-Bar is not a physically accessible location and is located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. The show is 10 bucks at the door and for more information about it, please visit kazookazoo.ca. All right, we're back on Long Night, everyone. Thank you once again for being here uh, at the uh, Transact. We're at the Transact, and not the. Uh, where do we normally do this, James? The Great Hall. The Great Hall, which is a lovely venue. Is it a lovely venue?
2: It's uh, it's got charm.
3: Yeah, it does it have character. charm. It's nice. I actually like it very much. We're not there. I want to mention. Uh, no, I mean no. I mean we're not there tonight. And it was a nice segue into what I was about to say, which is that we're actually taking this show on the road. To
1: Newfoundland,
3: yeah. Right. Our uh, the next episode of Long Night takes place in St. John's, Newfoundland. Wow. For uh, yeah, for Is a live everyone taping.
0: Everyone going?
3: Yeah, everyone's going. I'm just gonna start an Indie Go Go thing, and then we'll <laughs> will all go. Maybe we can tap into her dough. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, a lot of dough in yeah. your mouth. <laughs> yeah. St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, live taping at the Rocket Room at the Lanyavanya Festival on Friday, May sixth. And I have another announcement. This is new. It sounds like I might be doing a Creative Control episode live at the Hillside Festival in Guelph, which is very exciting. That's the weekend of uh, thank you. Weekend of July 22nd, so please check those out. All right, I'm very excited about our next guest. He's an outspoken and gifted poet, rapper, and author who originally hails from Queen Bean, Australia. His latest book is a riveting There it is right there, riveting, poetic novel called Here Come the Dogs. Please make some noise for Omar (laughs) Musa. Nice, Uh, how about a hand for the bicycles, doing a little GNR there. Um, Omar, do you have some connection to the song Paradise City that I don't know about?
1: Not at all. I'm just, you know... Bikes? uh,
3: Just random? It's a song you knew. Okay, (laughs) normally they do a thing and... I mean, you seem like a guy who'd spend time in Paradise
1: City. I'm just a dreamboat.
3: (laughs) You are. There's already some cheering from my parents. That's weird. Um... (laughs) No, it's nice. they got
1: good taste.
3: Welcome back, or welcome rather, to Toronto. Have you been here before?
1: Thank you. No, I've never been here before. First time, yeah. Like, I didn't know what to expect.
3: What do you make of uh, our city?
1: It's good, man. I like it. There's a lot of good food. Multicultural city. I kind of expected it to be like a a Drake music video or something. Like, when I walked in, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, when I got into immigration, and I always have a hard time in immigration, because I've got that bin as my middle name, Omar Bin Musa. You're Omar Bin Musa, yeah. So, I kind of... Did that hotline bling dance, like sort of shimmied through immigration. They didn't take too kindly to it.
3: What you did, really? Did you... Was that a strategy you employed?
1: (laughs) I feel like it's a strategy I should just try and employ in life in general. (laughs) Just walk down the street. would bring cheer to people, I feel.
3: You are a a massive hip-hop fan. Uh, Obviously, Toronto's having more than a moment at this point. Are you immersed in what's going on in our city in terms of hip-hop?
1: Not really, but I want to find out. (laughs) I want to find out about it because I was chatting to some people today, uh, this morning, who were telling me that actually there was a very thriving scene in the 90s that was very much influenced by Caribbean music and kind of patois. Yes, patois, yes that's kind of changed. Like when BET became massive over here, the hip-hop became very much influenced by America.
3: Well, you've likely experienced the same thing where you're from, right? Did you find that there was an Americanization of the of
1: the form? Well, I mean, it's an American form. It's an American form. Know? That's um, true. Sorry. But yeah, like there was a kind of early debate in Australian hip-hop about whether you should rap in your Australian accent or an American accent. And, you know, there were these kind of divided camps. I never took it too seriously, but I kind of, I rapped in an American accent for the first few songs that I made, and then I was kind of like, what the hell am I doing? Now who, that sound, that sound ridiculous? Who's that a, I spoke in my real Australian accent, mate. <laughs> you know.
3: Whose American accent would you say you were emulating? Because uh, <laughs> I mean, because there are different. Uh, you know, obviously there are different American accents, as there are in different parts of the world.
1: Yeah, but... I, I was very much drawn to uh, West Coast hip hop, so I kind of wanted to be an Australian Ice Cube or Dr Dre. Nice. Um, <laughs> a bit of a So, dra- so like Ice Cube, you know, I would kind of just yell into the mic with this deep kind of voice. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it felt to me like a lot of the white Australian rappers had very nasal Aussie voices, and I had a big voice, so I wanted to emulate those guys.
3: Now, what about uh, Iggy
1: Azalea? She's from Australia. Uh, no no you're one stitching l- me up with this one. No
3: one likes her. <laughs> no one
1: seems to like her in I, I well, rap look, music. I kind of dealt with this. I did this interview on. Oh Q yes, this morning, that's right. And, you were with my friend uh, Chad I, I, today, yeah. I ripped into Iggy Azalea. Um, you know, I, I feel like uh, she's a strange figure. I, I, I described it on the radio today as verbal blackface, uh, you know, what, what she does. Um, you know, she is someone who is obviously very drawn to black culture, but maybe the glamorous elements of black culture who sort of battens down the hatches and becomes defensive when asked to talk about stuff that's a little bit more serious. Right. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I was thinking about today because I ripped into her so brutally on the radio uh, from <laughs> coast to coast, and I was thinking that maybe... Uh, I wasn't being overly harsh, but at the same time, I feel like Iggy comes under more fire than other people because she deals with a lot of misogyny that a lot of uh, male rappers don't deal with. Like, I feel like she comes under more fire because she's a woman. Like, there's this kind of interesting added layer. Like, there are the kind of legitimate concerns about her and the, the, the problematic side to Iggy, but then there's this kind of disgusting, venomous, poisonous... Kind of misogyny that people hurl at her as well—that would never be an issue, hmm. yeah. say with well, well, like Vanilla Ice. You know what I mean? Like he—he he came under a lot of fire back in the day, but no one was talking about what his body looked like or, sure. or whatever. You know sure, what I mean? Sure. So it's kind of a yeah, it's a complex issue.
3: Clearly, but you still—you <laughs> went after I'm trying her. Trying to today. get my head around it. No, know? I know. and I mean, you probably weren't expecting to have to deal. You thought probably you're gonna have to deal with a lot of questions about Crocodile Dundee, right? Not Iggy well, Azalea. <laughs>
1: Paul Hogan, you know, he's my Is he cousin. a hero? No, is he? He's the Prime Minister of Australia. right now. <laughs> no.
3: He was actually, he was a big deal in the 80s here. Did you know that? Did you know that Paul uh, Hogan was, was a... I was
1: born late in the 80s, so right. I, don't, I don't know too much about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. No, 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 I no it was 84.
3: Pl- I actually made a note. Do not ask about Paul Hogan, and then it just came up. Right. I'm sorry. He was a big deal. I love for...
1: Crocodile Dundee. I do too. Yeah. That's why I wanted to bring so it up.
3: Good. Anybody? Crocodile Dundee? Silly, just yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Now I'm I ripe have, for ridicule. <laughs> I have been immersed in the world of this book. It's a wonderful book. Oh, thank you. And uh, it's really vivid, it's frenetic, it's hypnotic. How fantastical is this landscape? How much is this grounded in some reality that, you can, that you've experienced?
1: Well, yeah, I grew up in a small town similar to the one that I describe in this novel, uh, where there are migrants from all around the world trying to forge a life for themselves in Australia. I grew up around a lot of young men who felt uh, marginalised and powerless, like the characters in the book. But I tried to take the uh, specifics of my hometown and kind of magnify and distort them and enlarge them and to create kind of a feverland or a dreamscape. Yeah, that's you know, what I it I wanted feels to like, yeah. heighten it and, and take it into the realm of myth uh, because sometimes Australia feels that way to me. It sort of feels like this fiery, combustible place where I'm not sure quite what is reality or what is a nightmare or a dream, you know? Yeah. So I kind of... Uh, yeah, I took parts of my life and the history of my town and the specifics of my town and then, you know, cha- change them to something you else. amplified them. Amplified them through that kind of alchemy of poetry, I guess.
3: Well, there's it's prose, it's poetry, it's very gritty. On some level, to me, even maybe stereotypically by the artwork, this is a hip-hop novel, right? Right. Would I mean, you I, say
1: that? I mean, I guess so. Like, I was trying to deal with hip-hop. I was trying to take it seriously in this novel, you know? It comes under a lot of ridicule. It gets a... It's a bad rap. Ah. And uh, no, but like, particularly <laughs> growing up, like Australian hip-hop, it wasn't taken seriously, you know? People would laugh at you for rapping in your accent. They would say that's not something that no, Wait a minute, you, you,
3: You've you mentioned this before. Are Australians laughing at you for rapping in an Australian accent? Who is laughing at you? Uh, Where yeah, are they? Can we find them? Yeah,
1: we should hurt them. Yeah, we definitely. i now, was it, up for w- a punitive expedition of some sort. There's uh, a dialogue
3: in this book among the main characters talking about... Uh, accents as we were discussing earlier and how someone sounded more American than Australian and how the Australian accents kind of sound a bit corny right right so what this was real like how do you how do you overcome your accent because it sounds like to me that you tried to adopt an American accent but then you circle back around when you realize it was more genuine
1: yeah I'm not sure I think there are a few kind of breakthrough acts uh, who started to make some music that was a little bit more accessible to larger audiences and then people were kind of just like, oh, cool, yeah, actually the Australian accent doesn't sound so bad. Right. But then weirdly in Australia it kind of got co-opted by some of these kind of uh, nationalistic, jingoistic Aussies who were just like, oh, bloody hell, yeah, Australian hip-hop. And it could be sort of like the soundtrack oh, to some of their uh, strange prejudices. Had and an underlying nationalism yeah, thing Yeah, yeah, so oh. it's, a, it's a weird thing, you know, like when it kind of, this, this culture and this music gets transported to another country. But I would say, yeah, I mean, it's the first novel in Australia that's dealt with... The thriving hip hop culture and graffiti culture in Australia, right. and you know, I think that's part of our job as storytellers is to, you know, is to look for stories where they haven't been looked for before, and to kind of extend sympathy where it hasn't been extended before. You know? Yeah,
3: it does feel like you're trying to show the world a whole other side of Australia. It seems like this is something you took upon yourself in this book. Why was it important to you to to show us this side of what we think is a place run completely by little koala bears? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, Australia sometimes likes to present itself to the world as a place that is egalitarian, that has a very shiny veneer, and there's these kind of blonde babes lazing around on Bondi Beach getting bronze tans and whatnot. And that there's either the kind of majesty of the outback or these these coastal idylls. But, you know, a lot of us didn't grow up like that. We grew up in the suburbs. We grew up in flats. Uh, We were part of ethnic minorities that were trying to figure out what the hell to do in Australia. Um, and so, yeah, I, I want to delve further into what it means to be Australian, the complexities and the messiness of my country. You know, I'm not interested in this, in these shiny uh, kind of postcards that people try and present because that's not the reality. You know, just as there are, I'm sure, many stereotypes about Canada uh, that are totally untrue and that there's a lot of darkness going on underneath the surface. The, the weird, that's what's interesting to me.
3: The weird thing about every Canadian stereotype is that they're true.
1: You, got, you are very friendly. It's I'll, very I'll, I'll strange.
3: Of every country, like every name st- What do you think of when you think of Canada? I'll tell you if it's true or not. You <laughs> um, said friendly. Friendly. Yeah.
1: yeah fr- People are friendlier here. There's less guns, I guess. So like, even if you, yeah, Like that's than true. in America. Like I did notice that. Like that kind of difference. Like it's less violent here. It feels like. Yeah. Well, at least if you don't like someone, if you decide to be unfriendly, kind of can't do as much about it. No. <laughs> What do people think of Trudeau? Like, do people genuinely love this guy? Like, it seems like everyone's just in this honeymoon There's period. a lot
3: of cynicism about Trudeau. Right. There's a lot of people who are very happy that we've moved on from the last guy right. and his policies. But there is a lot of cynicism because every couple of weeks, something he promised he would try to do, turns out he can't do it. Right. So there is a bit of pushback now. Okay. But And also, your media in particular, he went to Washington, which is the first time a prime minister has gone to Washington in, what was it, 30 years or something? And really?
1: A Canadian prime minister. Yeah,
3: I don't know what the hell oh. that was about. What did we do? <laughs> right. But they didn't go. I don't know why they didn't go. It's very close.
1: I can see that. I mean, it's so it's so weird. Like there are these kind of messianic figures. You know what I mean? And yeah. Like, we look at it from Australia. and We're like, God, I wish we could have someone like that because Who's had, your guy? Who do you got? Uh, this guy called Malcolm Turnbull. Oh, like,
3: he's terrible, isn't he? Like an awful guy.
1: He, the, the guy before was even worse. Oh, okay. <laughs> but but That's Malcolm Turnbull. Um, you know, he seemed alright. He seemed very kind of prime ministerial, but. He's at the, he's under the control of the right wing of his party, so his hands are bound. Oh, okay. Right but uh, anyway.
3: Now, what was your? You mentioned that you were trying to show this darker side of Australia. Uh, this is reflective of your upbringing. What was your upbringing like? You mentioned uh, that you had some adversity as a, a minority, but.
1: I mean, yeah, like it's it's all relative, I guess. Like I think in many ways I had quite a middle class upbringing. You know, uh, I was very lucky. I came from an artistic family. My mother um, was an arts journalist who ran a very small free arts magazine, you know, the kind of thing that would be handed out in the mall or whatever. Um, And so we had no money when I was in primary school ever, we were always broke, but I I got to go to a lot of plays and I got to go to a lot of exhibitions and cabaret and things like this. So in that way I was very rich, I was very privileged. Um, But then in other ways, you know, when you're an ethnic minority in a a white culture, uh, you do feel marginalised, you do feel like you're kind of pushed to the side. And then after September 11th, that kind of changed again. Uh, you know, there was a lot of Islamophobia in Australia, and I started to realize, like, wow, I, was, I wasn't just an outsider. I was, I was the enemy. You know, yeah, people like me, people with my name, we were the ones that th- these people are yelling about and, and screaming about with such hysteria. So you know, uh, th- I mean, it, it is adversity for sure. Uh, Compared to a lot of people, I had it very... You
3: feel like you had it okay. Now, you uh, are... You, I think I read or heard that your, your father turned you on to poetry, or your father gave you some guidance towards discovering poetry?
1: Yeah, well, well, poetry is kind of a living and breathing art form um, in Malaysia and Indonesia, as it is in so many places around the world. It's um, something that people would do spontaneously in the village. You know, my dad grew up in a small shanty town called Sim Sim, which is in um, East Malaysia, in Borneo. And he and his friends would kind of freestyle these poems and spontaneously pass them between each other. And, uh, and he found a lot of fun doing that. And actually, my grandmother, who never went to school, she never learnt to read or write. She was living on the streets from the age of eight. She recently told me that she had created 50 poems in her head while she was wandering around the streets. That helped her survive.
3: Your mom was the Jay-Z of Australia, grandmother, basically. Though. Though. Your, no, oh, your no, grandmother, though. No, your grandmother in wow. Borneo. Wow. Never wrote anything down, just always in her head. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. I, I like
1: that, actually. Yeah, the, she, she's kind of the... You like the... Like I, the toothless Jay-Z. <laughs> 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 oh, man, I was thrown her under the bus. She's Jay, a very beautiful lady. Jay-Z. Z very, very beautiful lady, Jay- actually. Jay-Z
3: the, is a, uh, he's very famous for never writing anything down. Sometimes I, I think that shows, but other times <laughs> right. he's really solid, yeah. So, okay, so you're, it's in your family. The words are in your family.
1: I mean, I think it goes through so many societies. It's only like lately that, or at least uh, in Australia I could see, and in the Western world, where it started to become so much a part of academia that poetry was perceived as being in an ivory tower and kind of separate from daily life. Yeah. But I think you know every country around the world, and, and, and I think that's why hip-hop has taken a stronghold in so many countries as well, because it, it naturally links into those kind of oral traditions?
3: Well, hip-hop is among the fo- most obvious musical forms that um, empowers people. So I, I think that it, there's a, a sense of asserting your confidence against oppression. Right. Uh, that's where it came from. I would agree with and that. And I think that that's why so many uh, other cultures who are feeling that will adopt hip-hop as a, a platform. as opposed, It used to maybe be punk for some people, but that's more expensive, that's, probably, uh, <laughs> to get hit, get going, right, to get all that stuff. But. I mean,
1: that's how I got into it. You know, from a young age, um, I was looking for living, breathing poetry that my father talked about. I couldn't see it in Australia. Yeah. And then one day I was watching a documentary about the black Muslims and I was really into them. I was really into Malcolm X. I would just like watch his speeches all the time, photocopy photos of him, put them in my school diary, yeah. make posters of this guy. And then, um, at the end of this documentary about the black Muslims, there was this section that showed public enemy jumping oh. up and down on stage.
3: I was listening to Fear of a Black Planet on the way here. Yeah. Oh, in my car. Keeping it so real, man. I'm trying to. <laughs> I was just I needed something to get me pumped up and I knew I was
1: talking to you and yeah. I just I, it felt like the right thing. No, totally. And and um it was either that or midnight and, oil. And it wasn't just the, the <laughs> it wasn't just the, the poetry and the way that they were dressing. It was their boldness and their brashness, and I could tell that they were speaking out against something. Yeah. And of course I couldn't totally relate, you know, I'd never uh, i'm not african-american i've never been to where they came from but i felt like there was a certain type of uh energy or spirit that they were representing that i could relate to there's somehow a and way fight, th-
3: there's somehow a way just shy of appropriation where you can relate to someone else's culture isn't there you know what i mean like yeah. you can you can i i totally like public enemies spoke to me when i was a kid i didn't understand what they went through or what they were talking about but it spoke to me right i could relate to it so that's it's just interesting that, that Good art and yeah, good culture. Yeah, there's a distinction
1: between yeah. saying you can relate to that struggle and saying that it is your struggle. Right. Yeah.
3: And that's something that Iggy Azalea has had trouble <laughs> distinguishing between. Exactly. Yeah. Now, we did a thing earlier, sort of where we talked about Canadian stereotypes. I want to ask the panel. We have all experienced Australia in various medi- mediated ways. I talked about uh, croc, croc Dundee. Uh, I'm curious, what's the first thing each of you think of when you think of Australia and to give you my guests a break we're going to start with James James what's the very first thing you think of when you think of Australia
2: Michael Hutchins
3: from In In Excess Excess. that's okay I'm a
2: a, oh I'm a child of the 80s so I grew up on uh, In Excess and loved that band and that was my first like Midnight Oil followed shortly after but Mm -hmm. I think my In Excess was the first band that I knew that was like They're from this thing that's on the other, that island on the other side of the globe. Right. There's, like, people there, and they make music. that sounds like this. That's true. Right, okay. They have awesome hair that you will never, ever have, no matter how often you go to the barber and say, (laughs) I want that hair. (laughs) 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 Thank you very much, James.
3: Uh, Karis, what about you?
5: Um, So for me, it's uh, Priscilla Queen of the Desert. uh, Good one. One of my favorite lines of of all time, which is uh, a cock.
6: In a
3: frock on a rock. So, oh um, yeah I love that line. <laughs> nice. Okay. Very nice. Thank you, Hadani.
6: Well, I actually lived in Australia in 1989. I took the bus across the country in the summer. Um,
3: is that a is that an achievement?
6: I was oh. 20. Oh, it's um, gross. Is and it? I yeah, it was actually quite beautiful because <laughs> I'd wake up in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night and the stars would be upside down and it was just I loved it actually and I lived in Perth for six months and. Um, I had like an Australian rock star boyfriend and... Was it uh, Michael Hutchins? Yeah, it wasn't Michael Hutchins, but I think they were related by Six Degrees of Separation. It was Priscilla. He was in a band called Fremantle Doctor. I loved Perth. I loved the vibrancy, the multiculturalism, the great arts scene. Oh, nice. I was going to emigrate there, um, and then, I don't know, I turned... You know, you, you had to be under 26, and various other things happened, and then it was too late. Maybe I'll go back there. I, I loved Australia. Okay, well especially I, I the West Coast. Didn't realize
3: you had a personal connection. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So d- I'm curious about you. Are, is there a misperception about Australia that is often, you know, conveyed that you're just tired of? Like what would you like people to stop asking you about when it comes oh, to Oh, there's that Foster's one.
1: Someone even said it tonight. were just like, I think they've got Foster's on tap here. I was like, we don't drink that. Like, no Australian drink. Can foster. you do the
3: rest of our interview in a Canadian accent?
1: No, no, sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I hate. No, it's it great. The, sorry, my, uh, my apologies. I think they
3: got Foster's here, eh? Yeah. Like, you were very close. I'm sorry, very I'm close.
1: Sorry. You know what? Drake does this all the time, and it really pisses me off. What like, does he do? He, he like goes to England and like always tries to speak in an English accent. And he it's, does? And it's, it's one of Is the he? most kind of embarrassing and shameful <laughs> things I've seen someone do. Uh, so, so, so I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, I just did it before and I'm never doing it again. Okay, gonna, no, no, it's fine. It. So but, you want uh, people
3: to stop thinking that you guys uh, chug cans of Foster, smash them on your head and throw yeah, them to the ground? Is that your ride deal? Ride
1: kangaroos around. Right. You know, it's not, I, I haven't been in Canada long enough. Like in America, people have all these misperceptions. They're kind of like...
3: They can be kind of dumb.
1: Um, I mean, yeah. Which
3: so, a, I, I don't want to. So can me. we? We can be dumb.
1: They, they, uh, you know, someone asked me recently, like within the last month. Oh, you know, I was. They were saying oh, I was on the internet the other day. Um, you know what that is, right? Like you have that in Australia. Oh. And I was like, yeah, we have the internet. Like it's not just two cans connected by a piece of string. Like what the hell do you think we wow. have? You know what I mean? It's madness. That's weird. Like...
3: Wait, doesn't your Wi-Fi go in the opposite direction? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm wow. here for another few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, so Australia is good. Everyone loves Australia. We're fine.
1: Well, yeah. That was the
3: moral uh, of that stayed, segment, yeah. I guess. Okay. Yeah. Now, I understand. Uh, oh, well, before we get to this, I want to know what's next for you because this is, what, 2014 this book came out? Yeah, yeah. Right. So you're a do-buddy. What are you doing?
1: I know, I'm getting money for old rope, is what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) um, What do you got? You got a project? You're working on something? uh, Yeah, I'm going to put out an EP in the next couple of months. I kind of miss the energy of hip-hop. And then uh, in the next few years, I've already started working on this new novel. Uh, That's about a blind Malay... Transgender sea captain that is leading a journey into the archipelago. We will have to have a chat about it. Like, so I'll whole do this respectfully. Panel together
2: into one. Topic.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is
6: there an Iraqi angle? <laughs> well,
1: no, not as of yet. But oh, okay, well. no, I am. Um, I'm really interested. I, I felt like I dealt with Australia in this novel, and I want to turn my eyes towards the the uh, Malayan Indonesian archipelago. Right. Okay. And you know, like nowadays, uh, the powers that be are trying to narrow identities into these into these kind of um, rigid things. And, uh, and I think the history of the archipelago has been one of very fluid identities, whether they be sexual or religious or racial and so I'm trying to trying to delve into that in the next novel. So it's going to take a while, but uh, hopefully I'll get there.
3: Well I'm so excited. I mean this, this if you haven't uh, do we have copies of this for sale here we must no we do yeah we do I heard we do Pick this book up. it's amazing. Now before we wrap this whole thing up, are you going to perform something for us?
1: Should I perform something for you guys <laughs> <laughs>
3: I, this was not necessarily something I expected to happen, so this is very exciting. Thank you. What are you going to do?
1: Uh, I'm going to do a poem called Fireflies. I was trying to have a uh, connection to Toronto, and I wrote this after seeing a friend of mine from here who wrote a status about, uh, on Facebook about fireflies, and so I wrote this whole poem about it. Oh, nice. And a side note is that I got a call about this poem from a very familiar Australian voice, like from an unknown number, and it turned out it was Russell Crowe who just loves this poem, apparently, and loves Australian poetry. So there's a massive name drop for you. Wow. But just in case any of you guys don't like what I did tonight, but you needed some celebrity validation, then there it is. Uh, so wow, is that's remarkable. Fireflies.
3: Okay, let's hear it.
1: She said, As a child, I lived in the mountains. I used to collect fireflies in a jar and use the light to read my books. I said, What a beautiful world it is. She said, now when I return to the mountains, there are no fireflies left. And I said, what a heartbreaking world it is. So when our heroes grow old and our dreamers go mad, when our songbirds go silent and fires burn on each corner, I live for the little whims. When there are hands over ears and tape over mouths, when I no longer know if I prefer to be awake or asleep, the silence of the undertow or the crashing of waves on a reef when they promise us everything and they treat us like nothing. I live for the little wins. Like like when you eat a meal and straight afterwards you realise that what you just ate, shit sis, that was exactly what you felt like. You know what I'm talking about. Like when mangoes are nine bucks a box. I actually did this poem recently in Thailand, and they were just like, nine bucks, bloody extortionate. Anyway, it's all all relative. Like a surprise email that makes your day. Like the first sip of water after a day-long fast during Ramadan. Like the first line after writer's block. Like a student who can barely spell her name but pens the perfect line. You see, I live for the things I'm ready to die for. I stand for the things for which I'm willing to fall. We all promise that to ourselves sometimes. We, the people, most fragile of all. We, the people who drag nets to the shore hoping to find diamond rings in the guts of fish and pearls in the bellies of dragons. We, the men and women who stand inches from screens that scream at us to lose weight or gain funds. We, the seething mass of darlings and friends rapists, racists, killers of men, rompers, stompers heroes, fashionistas and feminists, protesters who swing their bats at the system, hoping the shards form mosaics, and lovers who swing for the fences. You See this poem? This poem right here is dedicated to the outsiders, to the outcasts, to the eccentrics who never let coolness whitewash their madness. This is for the kids on the Mish, on the pavements, in the basements, in the flats and in the schoolyards. It's for the poets who write this is for poems, my friends, in Toronto. This poem is for you, because they will treat your voice like a crime for which you have no alibi. So make it a crime of passion, raise it at their eyes, shoplift time. Pickpocket perseverance from the haters and leave the rest behind. Speak, speak, speak with purpose. Teeth brighter than a city's spine. Little wind though it may be. Who knows? Perhaps someday, one day, the fireflies will return. Thank Thank you guys.
3: Omar, that was lovely. Thank Thanks. you. How about another hand for Omar Musa? You can follow Omar Musa on Twitter at OBM Music, and that's our show. We are done. I, I want to thank all of my guests for being on the program. How about another round of applause for everybody on stage? Once again, if you can, come out to our next tapings, May 6th at the Lanya Vanya Festival in St. John's, Newfoundland. Follow us on Twitter, at Vish Khanna, at Vish Creative, and at Spurfest. And that's the show. Thanks so much for watching us and listening. Good night, everybody! Good night to see you. <laughs> Bicycles!